0: Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. We're going to spend today talking about the Derek Chauvin trial, but before we get started, I want to start with a question. Are you watching the Derek Chauvin trial? And if you are, what's your reaction then? How much are you able to watch? And do you find yourself overwhelmed by emotion from the testimony and the images that are included in the trial? It's a subject that's been really difficult for me to think or talk about over the last couple of weeks. I'm keeping up with the trial, of course, because, well, that's part of my job. I read every day about what happens in the courtroom and the trajectory of the arguments that are being made. But so far, at least, I have found it impossible to actually watch the trial, to listen to the testimony that's being given, or look at any of the images that are being shown to jurors. It's, it's really just too much, emotionally. Similarly, I have never actually watched the full video of Derek Chauvin kneeling across George Floyd's neck for more than seven minutes, choking the life out of him. That's too much, too. When I think about those things, it's just too easy to imagine myself or my son or anyone else I know in the same situation. And it's too easy to let the anger and, yes, the hatred rise in me toward Derek Chauvin and the entire system of inequality that powers what he did to George Floyd. So I've been practicing careful avoidance, never clicking on the channels that are showing the trial and even avoiding television news reports that replay snippets of courtroom testimony. I'm boycotting, I guess, in a sense. But I still believe it's important for us to be talking about this here on our show. And it's important to have you, our listeners, in a conversation about all of the dynamics that are on display in that courtroom in Minneapolis. Like so many things that we do on this show, we can only begin to work through the harsh realities of our nation and the trauma that I think many of us are experiencing and deal with our systems of governance by coming together for honest and authentic conversation. So I ask again, are you watching the Derek Chauvin trial? How are you feeling about the things that you're seeing? Do you think this has the potential to play a role in our collective shift toward valuing black bodies and black life a lot more in this country? Or are we destined for continued polarization, regardless of the outcome here? Later in the hour, I'm going to talk with Nia Malika Henderson, who is a senior political reporter for CNN. She recently wrote an op-ed titled, Why I Can't Watch the Derek Chauvin Trial. She is feeling many of the same things that I'm feeling, and I think feeling a lot of the things that a lot of people are feeling about this trial. But before we get to that, I'm joined by a familiar voice here on Detroit Today to talk about the ways that from a procedural perspective, this trial has really been noteworthy and unique. Barb McQuaid is a law professor at the University of Michigan and former United States Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. And she joins us now. Barb, welcome back to Detroit Today.
1: Oh, thanks, Stephen. Glad to be with you.
0: So I want to start by having you give us your overall impressions of this trial so far.
1: Well, first, like you, I, I also find it hard to watch. I've tried to follow the trial, watching some of it live, some of the clips, and reading about it every day. Uh, but but like you, it, it it's too much. And I, I know that as a as a black man for you, there um, are probably moments that are even more emotionally wrenching for you to watch, but I think anyone who is human uh, would find this difficult to watch. Um, it has been interesting, though, I think, you know, of course, we've only seen the prosecution's case. We haven't had a chance to see the defense, so views may change as we see that, of course, and the jury has to be open to seeing all sides, but I feel like the prosecution has has really made a very compelling case here. Um, And some of the things that they've done strategically have been very uh, valuable, like including the testimony of the bystanders, Mm -hmm. who are really amazing witnesses. And I think uh, any effort to portray them as an angry mob has really fallen flat when you hear who they are, and the emotion of their testimony. And so that's, that's also been hard to watch. You're not only seeing the video of George Floyd losing his life, but seeing these you know, regular people who are just going about their day kind of suffer through the reliving and retelling of this story, some of them breaking down in the stand, understandably, and many of them expressing feelings of remorse and guilt that they, they didn't do more to save George Floyd's life. So it, uh, it has been, um, I think, heart-wrenching for all of us. But as you say, maybe a moment when the nation comes together and watches and realizes that um, this has no place in American society. I think one thing that's been a little different from some of the trials we've seen in the past is, um, you know, no thin blue line here. We are seeing police uh, officers, police professionals testifying that what they saw was wrong, violation of policy, dangerous, and completely inappropriate. So uh, I think their testimony will be very persuasive uh, and hopefully a a key moment, a key inflection point in policing in this country.
0: Yeah. So, So one of the ways that this case is really different from most police excessive force cases is that the victim here presented no threat to the police officer. And in fact, we don't even necessarily uh, we're not being asked to believe that he did pose a threat uh, to the officer. Uh, can, can you talk about the role that that plays in this case and, and the court rulings uh, in the past about what police officers are allowed to do when they feel that their lives are in danger? Yeah, I
1: think that's a really important insight. And I think it's one of the things that does make this case so different. Um, you know, you you probably hear and have observed that it can be very difficult to convict police officers. And part of that is because of the law. There's a case called uh, Graham versus Connor that says that, you know, police officers may use deadly force if they believe either their own life or the safety of the public is in danger. And so uh, it also says you have to keep in mind um that police officers have to deal with, make decisions in a split second, that situations are tense, rapidly evolving, and you have to put yourself in the shoes of the reasonable police officer. And so if the officer can say, you know, I I saw a black shiny object in his hand and I thought it was a gun, uh, that can be enough if a jury is persuaded or that there's even just some reasonable doubt that he might have thought that that black shiny object was a gun when he fired his own gun. And so this idea that police officers may overreact and be uh, implicitly biased and fearful of black suspects and shoot way sooner than they would have shot other types of suspects, if a reasonable officer in that situation might have feared for his life uh, or the the safety of the public, he's allowed to use that, that fatal force. And I think that's what's different in this case. George Floyd was clearly presenting no threat at the moment he was killed. Uh, He had been subdued. We've heard testimony from experts about how dangerous it is to put someone in that prone position. Uh, And and although maybe members of the public don't realize that when you have someone on their stomach uh, in a prone position with their hands behind their back, just that alone is dangerous. And then when you add the pressure on their back or neck, uh, it can be lethal. Uh, At some point, he is offering zero resistance. He, He was handcuffed. He was on the ground. So I don't think there is going to be that argument that at any point, Officer Chauvin or any of the others felt any risks to their own lives or the lives of others. So I think that is one way, Stephen, that this case is different from others and is a much stronger case for the prosecution.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm talking with Barb McQuaid, a law professor at the University of Michigan, former uh, U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. We're talking about the Derek Chauvin trial happening in Minnesota and being broadcast live on at least a few uh, cable stations. uh, We're talking about how difficult it has been to watch this trial because of the circumstances under which Chauvin uh, killed George Floyd. Uh, We're also talking about the trial itself, the things that we're seeing and hearing in this trial and how they may be different from other police excessive force cases uh, that we're a little more familiar with. Uh, we'd love to hear from you as well. Uh, are you watching the Derek Chauvin trial? Uh, how much of it are you watching? And give me a sense of what your emotions are, are like uh, when, you're, when you're taking all of this in. Are you able to watch without an excessive emotional response. Uh, or are you like me? Uh, I, I have not been able to watch live uh, the, the the trial itself. I am trying to keep up uh, with what's going on because uh, that's my job. Uh, and so I'm reading about it and watching some television news reports about it. But I have not been able to sit and witness what uh, these witnesses are saying on the stand or look at the images that uh, have been included in a lot of the testimony. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Barb, before we go to, to listeners, uh, I, I want to talk about the, the I guess, technological marvels of this trial. So they are putting witnesses on the stand who saw what Derek Chauvin did to George Floyd, but they didn't just see it. They also at least one of them or, or or more they they recorded it. And the public is able to see those recordings and so is the jury. And so it seems to me that the testimony itself takes on maybe a different Role or dimension here. Normally, you would just have people on the stand saying what they saw, and the jury would have to rely on that. Here, the jury is also able to see what the witnesses uh, saw, and that's something that, of course, we're seeing more and more of uh, in our society. I don't know that I've seen it featured this way in a in a in a prominent trial that's uh, that's televised like this.
1: Yes, and you're right. More and more, there is video testimony. In fact, sometimes. When there's not this kind of video evidence, um, jurors say, I wanted to see it on video. There's almost an expectation uh, these days that there will be surveillance video. But it is an interesting uh, idea. You know, I know that there has been some pushback against surveillance video. Some of this was bystander video. Some of it was Mm -hmm. from stores nearby. And there certainly are some hard discussions that we need to have about, uh, for example, uh, the racial disparities in facial recognition and other things but it can also be a really powerful way for jurors to to be at the scene when we have people merely describing what they saw as we've done for centuries in trials and still do in many situations where there's no video we have to rely on the memories of the witnesses and if you hear from enough different people who were there you can try to piece together what you think really happened but you never really have a perfect image of exactly what happened and i think it is easier for defendants sometimes when the video matters to be able to present a different version from what actually happened. I think that video is a, a not, not only something that is um, helpful for uh, bolstering the testimony of witnesses, but also really holds officers accountable because jurors can see for themselves what happened. I think the horror of what happened is really magnified when people can see it. I do think there's one strategic um, Uh, pitfall that awaits prosecutors if they're not careful, and that is you can play the video too much. Um, It is very shocking. Mm -hmm. It is uh, horrible to watch, but they've played it now from many different vantage points. They've played from video surveillance, from body cams on officers, from bystander videos, and at some point there is a risk that the jury says, I don't want to watch this anymore. Uh, I'm numb to it. And so I think you don't want to lo- it to lose its power by making it too uh, clinical and too sterile. But I don't think we've reached that point yet. It, uh, it, it, it continues to horrify me, though I haven't watched all of it for the same reasons you. I, I just find it painful to watch all of it. But I think it makes for very uh, persuasive evidence. If this is a quest for the truth, the jurors can see for themselves uh, you know, they watch the whole nine minutes. Uh, they can see for themselves that George Floyd is subdued, for example. And so, if someone were to testify, I didn't believe the danger had passed, they can reach that conclusion themselves by seeing that uh, for the last two to three minutes, he's not moving at all. Hmm.
0: Hmm. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Uh, And in a little bit, uh, Nia Malika Henderson, a senior political reporter for CNN, is going to join us uh, to talk about the difficulties she has had watching uh, the Derek Chauvin trial. Uh, Let's go to Karen in Detroit. Karen, welcome to the show.
2: Oh, hi. Thank you for taking the call. Mm -hmm. Um, I I don't want to talk long, but what I was telling your screener was that I didn't intend to watch the trial and I was offended um, before the trial started because I felt that it was almost being it felt like it was being advertised almost as entertainment, you know, like it's it's coming up. And Hmm. and and I found that so offensive. But when the opening statements uh, were televised, uh, I think they were televised on all channels, um, I did. I did watch the opening statements and I didn't want to, but I just, I felt compelled to because I, it, it's such a moment in history. I, I, like I said, I didn't want to watch it, but I, I felt I had to, to see it. And I was so impressed with, with Jerry Blackwell's presentation. Um, and I, and I learned some things because I, I, I used to think that had I been there I just would have shoved that guy off of him, but what I learned is that it's against the law to even interfere with something when you see it's wrong. I'm sorry, I gotta go.
0: That's okay, Karen. Uh, I I really, really appreciate the call and uh, you sharing your your experience with this. Uh, and I think you know, again, there are a lot of people who feel the same way about uh, the the emotional content here. Uh, this is tough stuff, uh, and it's very Difficult to watch and 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 take in. Uh, Barb, two things jump out at me uh, from from Karen's call. One is the entertainment value of this kind of trial, which is not new. I mean, we can go back to the O.J. trial or uh, the Menendez brothers uh, trial, and 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 see similar kinds of uh, of popular uh, appeal, I guess, for these kinds of uh, court proceedings. Uh, but the second Thing uh, here is uh, is this question of uh, the, the 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 approach that the prosecution has taken, and it and it has been very emotional. I mean, they have really appealed to uh, the jurors' uh, feelings. I feel like uh, in the way that they're presenting evidence, and of course, uh, in, in the opening statement.
1: Yes, I think uh Karen had some really interesting insights there. um I think there is when you televise a trial like this and hype it as you know this big trial tune in in the same way you hype other types of entertainment that uh it could in in many ways insult and diminish the life of george floyd who man who lost his life in some ways you know we are peering into a very private moment uh that was uh done in a very public way on a street, and we're seeing you know the video again and again, and there is something that feels almost obscene about that. And I think it's really on the judge to try to maintain uh, the sobriety of the courtroom um, and the dignity of the courtroom. And I think the judge is doing a good job of that. I don't feel like there have been a lot of theatrics in the courtroom. Uh, It has been a a sober, uh, respectful presentation, I think. So I hope that that Karen has found that it has not been... um, conducted in a way that diminishes the life of George Floyd or the loss of his life.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And then with regards to the emotion, um, yes, and I think it's deliberate, uh, you know, you'll notice uh, if you've been following even, you know, in the papers that um, the order of witnesses was done really, I think to start with, with an emotional grab. Mm -hmm. Um, They didn't tell the story chronologically. You know, uh, we heard from Christopher Martin as witness like six or so, who was the store employee who actually took uh, the $20 bill, which is really where the story begins, and then followed him out to the car and called the police. They didn't start there. They started with the death,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: um, with the dispatcher who got the call and the people who were the bystanders uh, and described what they saw. And some of them, you know, really breaking down for the same reasons Karen just did, about it was they felt so helpless and feel so guilty that they were right there and there was nothing they could do about it. And so I think... uh, It is powerful and a life was lost. And I think the danger in a case like this, when you have all of these medical examiners and pulmonologists, it can get too clinical and you can forget that a human being lost his life here. So I think um, that was done by design to remind people of, uh, the the horror of the loss, and I, I don't think that's inappropriate.
0: Yeah, uh, quickly before we have to break, Micheline on Twitter wonders if the defense will have to settle before there's a verdict. Uh, she's she's really at a loss to understand how you would respond to everything that's pre- been presented. Uh, Barb, I wonder if you can give us just a, a a predictive preview, perhaps of what the defense might even say here uh, in response to what the prosecution has put on?
1: So although we are learning a lot about this case for the first time as we watch it unfold, the defense is not. The defense has seen all these witness statements before, has uh, had a chance to review all of uh, the evidence. Um, And so there are no surprises for the defense as the case goes forward. They've read all the reports. They've read all the expert reports. Um, So it seems from their opening statement that their strategy is causation and uh, that, yes, Officer Chauvin did all of these things, but the cause of death was not his conduct. It was instead the drugs that were ingested by by Mr. Floyd and some underlying health conditions. And you've seen his questioning uh, to try to probe those kinds of things. Now, I think the testimony we heard from the pulmonologist, Dr. Tobin, yesterday, Mm -hmm. who said it was his opinion that the cause of death was the shallowness of the breath, asphyxia, from you know, being in that position with a knee on his back. Uh, I think the defense will try to persuade the jury that there is some reasonable doubt as to what the cause was and that the cause actually was uh, Mr. Floyd's um, health and drugs in his system. And, you know, all they need is one, if they can persuade one that they're not sure, after they see the defense's own expert who might come in and testify to the contrary and say that the cause of death was the drug use, um, that's really all they need because then they can get a hung jury and the state will have to make a decision as to whether to bring the case again. And if the, after enough hung juries, uh, sometimes they don't, or sometimes the state is willing to offer a lesser plea. So uh, uh, Derek Chauvin has decided to roll the dice here. We don't know what his case may be. We don't know what his expert witnesses may say about the cause of death. So um, all this other stuff about um The officer's conduct becomes irrelevant because causation is an essential element of homicide. And if Derek Chauvin didn't cause the death, then he's not guilty of homicide. So that seems to be what the defense is banking on.
0: Okay. Barbara McQuaid, uh, law professor at the University of Michigan, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. It's always great to have you here on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thanks. Thanks for having me, here.
0: Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, I'm going to talk with CNN's Nia Malika Henderson about her recent op-ed, Why I Can't Watch the Derek Chauvin Trial. Stay with us and uh, stay with us on the phones. 313-577-1019 is the number. We will get to you when we come back. Stay with us for more Detroit Today.
2: 101.9
0: 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us We're talking this hour about the Derek Chauvin trial, and whether you're watching what's happening in that courtroom in Minnesota. I confessed at the top of the show that I have not been able to watch the trial, to listen to the testimony, to see the images that uh, are being presented to the jury, even though I'm following in the newspaper and on television the reports of the trial because, uh, well, I'm a journalist and that's part of my job. But watching is really just beyond my emotional capacity at this point. I can't take it all in and make sense of it. Turns out I'm not alone. Nia Malika Henderson is a senior political reporter for CNN, and she wrote an op-ed recently titled, Why I Can't Watch the Derek Chauvin Trial. Nia Malika Henderson joins us now to talk about her emotions. Nia, welcome to Detroit Today.
3: Hey there. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Sure. So as I said, uh, I've tried to watch, but this is just overwhelming, and I have had to turn it off. Uh, Have you tried to watch as well, or did you decide ahead of time that you wouldn't watch what happens in that courtroom?
3: i decided pretty much ahead of time and and this even goes back to not watching the video when that uh, uh, became known to the entire world last year so i hadn't watched the video and you know knew that likely the video would be featured prominently in any kind of trial of of the officer And so I just have avoided it. And listen, I admit it's difficult to avoid it. A, I'm a journalist. It does in some ways feel like a bit of a dereliction of duty to not watch it because it's such an important moment in our country's history, in the the world's history, in fact. Um, But I just couldn't, couldn't do it. And so I have to in some ways. Uh, go to great lengths to avoid it because I work at CNN. It's obviously being broadcast on CNN and it's all over the televisions there. So I kind of have to, you know, turn the TV down while I'm in my office, obviously. And, um, you know, and it's not being, uh, aired in my own household either. My my wife who is a news junkie, she's also avoiding it. Hmm. And and that's kind of a pattern I picked up on from other people, other friends and relatives, uh, that typically they are news junkies too. They're very plugged into what's going on nationally, but really no conversation about this trial and then and, and just active attempts to avoid it as well.
0: Yeah. So so I wanna talk just a little bit about our roles as african american journalists yeah. in, in american newsrooms these kinds of situations come up you know not infrequently where uh, mm-hmm. the fact that you're an african american the fact that you have these experiences as an african american make it difficult uh, to to do the job in the same way as our white counterparts that that, that there are emotions involved that they are just different um, and and I, w- I wonder if you can talk a little about that tension as it plays out for you, but also as it plays out uh, in the organization where you work, CNN, which is, you know, one of the largest uh, cable news stations on the on the planet.
3: Right. So, right. I mean, I think they're, they're both expectations that go along with being an African-American journalist. You know this. And very often we are... Uh, wanting to meet those expectations to be that voice in newsrooms uh, that haven't historically been very diverse Mm -hmm. and they're getting more diverse. And we're obviously a a part of uh, that, that voice um, for folks who haven't been there for for decades. You know, the thing about CNN is this article in some ways grew out of a conversation that I was having with one of, one of the producers of, of one of the shows, We were talking about when I was going to be next on and trying to plan for what my schedule was. And she asked, she was like, you know, do you want to be on if we're talking about uh, the the trial? And i was very honest. I just said, you know, I'm not watching this trial because I just find it very difficult, emotionally draining uh, to watch it. And she was just like, totally understand. So if there's another panel on politics, we'll have you on on that. Um, You know, there is a kind of, emotional burden, you know, sometimes I, I talk about it as like the black tax, right? There's a an added expectation, an added burden, uh, and it's a heavy one at, at times to have to uh, engage with these issues around racism, around police brutality in this instance. And, and, and even if you think about this entire year, right, where we've been dealing not only with um, the incident with uh, Mr. Floyd, the Black Lives Matter protests that erupted all over the globe as a result, the death, the massive death toll that Black and Brown communities have sustained because of the COVID pandemic it has been a heavy, heavy year uh, for black and, and brown folks. And I just decided for my own uh, mental health in many ways to step away from this part of it. And thankfully, you know, my, my folks uh, at CNN, my, you know, my bosses were very understanding about that. I was I was very nervous about putting this out there because, again, I am a journalist. I'm an objective journalist. I don't write op-eds, I don't really give my opinion, I don't use the I word (laughs) when I'm writing, and so there was some nervousness in the, you know, kind of hours before it published, but it was received quite well and resonated with people like you who said as well that they weren't comfortable watching the trial either.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking with uh, Nia Malika Henderson. Uh, She's a senior political correspondent for CNN. We're talking about the Derek Chauvin trial. She, like me, has been unable to watch the Derek Chauvin trial because of the powerful emotional content uh, in the testimony and the images that are being shown uh, to the jury. Uh, We want to know what you think as well. Uh, Are you watching Uh, the coverage of the Derek Chauvin trial. And if you are, give us a sense of what your emotional response has been. How have you been feeling as you watch people recount uh, the way that Derek Chauvin put his knee across uh, George Floyd's neck for many minutes, uh, squeezing the life out of him quite literally, Or are you somebody who has not been able to watch uh, because of the power of that uh, emotional content? Also call and give us a sense of where you think this places us in the sort of narrative of racial reconciliation in this country. We've had so many moments over the last year that I think are strong inflection points uh, in that narrative. This is one of them. Uh, Give us a sense of where you think we will be when this one... Is behind us. As always, the number here on the phones is 313 577 1019. That's 313 577 1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to include you that way. Uh, Big Neo on Twitter says, uh, I have not been able to watch either. The images and testimony. It's just too much for me emotionally. It's highly upsetting. It makes me wonder what I would have done had I been there when Chauvin committed that heinous act of killing George Floyd. Uh, Jim on Twitter says, the I can't breathe line gets all the attention. But for me, the gut punch is when Floyd called out for his mother. Can't watch. Uh, Let's go to the phones here. Uh, Brother Ray in Midtown. Brother Ray, what's on your mind today?
4: Good morning. There. Uh, we. Uh, I mean, I know it's difficult to to watch, but it's a it's a shame how a person can treat a human being in that manner. Which the world needs to see and be remindful that this stuff has been going on for hundreds of years mm-hmm. within the black community. But this is something I think very important during these times that a person like yourself, or a political a political prize winner, or some of the other black journalists to be on top of these stories because we need facts. We can't allow opinionated news to deliver us the facts. It's only a handful of black journalists at the level that you are that's able to get into these, into these stories and dig, take a deep dive in these stories. So we can't afford to to go underwater in terms of, I know it's tough, but we have to really deal with this. We got to face it. We got to face this issue of racism in this country. If we don't, I mean, it's going to continue to happen. We need people like yourself, Steve. We need people like you and the other sisters and, and a handful of other black journalists to deliver the facts, to break down what's going on. Because we can't really process all the information in these courtrooms or these particular cases. So we need someone that can process the information for us and package it for us and deliver it to us. Hmm. We can't afford to go on the water right at this time. Yeah. That's Bro- my comment.
0: Ray, I, I, I absolutely appreciate uh, your comments and uh, your challenge to to me and other and other black journalists and and believe me, you know I I, I feel that I I feel called to be able to say what needs to be said about uh, the Derek Chauvin trial and you know I'm not there in the courtroom covering it uh, and so I'm not reporting on it but but you're absolutely right that I feel an obligation to be talking about it. that's why we're doing uh, this show today. About it, and there there certainly will be other times to 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 come back to this issue i 'm sure uh, before the trial's over uh, but but I do want to just uh, again reinforce the idea that you know i 'm um, a journalist but i 'm also a person, and uh, the the limits of our personal capacity to watch something like this uh, on an extended basis to really take in every detail of it is it's just too much, um, you know, it, and I, I don't necessarily see it as an abdication on my part to say that I can't do that part of it. I am doing some of the other things. But but I hear you. I hear the frustration on your end that uh, that I'm not able to do it. Uh, Nia, I wonder if you have a reaction to, to Ray. No,
3: I, I appreciate his very heartfelt uh, comments there. And, and I will say that for CNN, we do have some great journalists who are covering this for us. Omar Jimenez is there, Sarah Seidner as well. So we do have uh, reporters of color who have been— in the courtroom who are tracking this and explaining it to our viewers in, in very detailed and, and insightful ways. Listen, this isn't a story that's directly on my beat. You know, if I was the justice correspondent, I, I probably would be in, in the courtroom and, and covering this national correspondent, I probably would be covering it. But given I am a political correspondent it is a little bit different for, for me, um, but listen, I appreciate w- what you're saying sir and and that's how my mom feels in many ways too. I talked to my mom about this, and she said she's watching it, she is, is taping it when she's away. she you know turns on on the television so that it, that it can record it, and then catches up when she gets home, and she feels like we as in African Americans, owe oh, George Floyd, this is the least we could do hmm. uh, is to watch these proceedings and so that is how she has felt about it and obviously other people feel different ways yeah
0: okay we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to continue this conversation with uh, nia malika henderson of cnn we'll also get to more of your comments and your calls bernadette in old redford glenn in the cast court or jerry in detroit we'll hear from you next if you want to join them again 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
2: News, music, culture, and community every day on one oh one nine WDET,
4: Detroit's NPR station.
0: This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Nia Malika Henderson. She is a senior political correspondent for CNN. Uh, She and I are talking about the Derek Chauvin trial. Neither one of us has been able to watch the trial itself, to watch the testimony that witnesses are giving in the courtroom or watch the images that uh, the jurors are being presented with. And the reason is the emotional content of all of that and how much it is, how uh, emotionally stressful it is to take all of that in. Uh, of course, both of us are journalists and we're doing our jobs, keeping up with the trial and uh, offering comment and uh, information where we can, but we haven't been able to actually sit and watch the trial. We all have, I want to know uh, this hour what experience you're having with the Derek Chauvin trial. Are you watching it? Are you taking all of this in? And if you are, what emotional reaction are you having to all of this? Is it overwhelming? Uh, Is it something that's really changed the way you see policing in this country or the relationship between police departments and the African-American community? Um, As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter, put comments there, and we'll try to include you in the show that way. Uh, Let's go to Bernadette in Old Redford. Bernadette, what's on your mind?
3: I'm thinking that this trial is... um pulling back a drape
2: on just what goes on in the trial. It's not law and order, um, where everyone asks great questions and the attorneys
3: are able to zoom in and zap (laughs) on the guilty. It's something different.
2: And uh, ever since Rodney King um, and that videotape didn't find the police guilty, can we even believe our eyes? Um, in In the guilt of people that we are watching perform
0: harm hm uh bernadette I, I really appreciate the the call and and the comments i mean i think um anytime you watch a trial on television actual trial on television it 's really different than what you see in the fictionalized versions and shows like uh like law and order and that 's an important that 's an important lesson i think for for Americans to know that uh, things don't work the way they do uh, in in fiction on on TV that it's a much more sober uh, and sobering process. Uh, thanks again for the call. Uh, Nia, I, I want to ask you about a moment uh, you had with your mom after another televised mm-hmm. trial uh, in America, the Rodney King uh, trial uh, and the verdict that uh, that came down in that case uh, tell our listeners about that
3: yeah I mean this was after that verdict which of course followed everyone watching the trial uh, watching and, and knowing about the, the video and then of course of uh, the riots that in uh, the uprising that, Uh, came about because of the fact that the folks who were responsible for beating Rodney King uh, got off. And so I'm sitting in my mother's room on her couch watching the events unfold, watching uh, this uprising and the riots uh, start in Los Angeles. And my mother, who was part of the civil rights movement, she told us tales about the civil rights movement as we were growing up as kids. She just began to weep Mm. at what she was seeing on television and cry out and just talk about uh, the pain that black people were in. Black people are in so much pain, she said over and over again, shaking Mm. her head, her body was rocking, her head was down, her head was in her hands. And I just felt so helpless for my mom, who had such faith in America, right? Part of that was being in the civil rights movement, pushing America forward. And in that instance, it was like, huh. So all of those things you told me about, the civil rights movement, the activism she engaged in and my father engaged in, all of that has led us to this moment, right? Where we have this these images of a, ma- a black man who's brutalized, Uh, by police officers and then nothing happened. And then, of course, uh, the riots that happened in, in Los Angeles. You know, that was kind of my generation version in some ways of what we're seeing now. And I do think there is some cynicism that goes along with people around our age because of what we saw back then. And a lot of doubt about whether Uh, Derek Chauvin will actually be found guilty, right? I I can almost find no one who actually thinks, particularly African-Americans, who actually thinks that they're going to come back with a guilty verdict Hmm. for uh, this police officer. And I think some of that, uh, that doubt in the justice system also plays into people not wanting to watch it, right? It's like you spend that emotional energy and then he gets off in the end so it's very complicated. And I will say this, too, and I think your other guest spoke to this, the idea that watching the trial, watching the video over and over again, people become numb sure. to the specter of Black death and Black suffering and Black pain. And that is a terrible thing, that that becomes clinical and sterilized and normalized. And that's also, I think, one of the reasons why I don't really want to participate in that because I always want to be horrified by that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, 313 577 1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Marl on the east side. Marl, welcome to the show.
5: Good morning, Steve. Thanks for uh, having me. Sure. Um, too often, well, I shouldn't say too often, but often we are faced with the idea of I wish I could have done more Um, and and watching this case, it it takes me back to that idea of, geez, what could we have done more to prevent something like this to have from happening? Um, How do we have an active chance to fight back against uh, police brutality? You know, how do we fund systems or, or, or or something to police these police? Um, It's, it's tough to watch Steven. Uh, it makes me go. It gives me the idea of uh, during slavery, during colonial times, um, when we read history and say, geez, if I was back then, I would have done this or that to <laughs> prevent this.
0: Yeah. And
5: here we are. We still live in those kind of times, unfortunately. And we we pull out our phones too often. I know that's a way of fighting back. I don't want to discount that. Yeah. Um, that's, that is a way of fighting back and reporting and uh, writing about it and, and capturing these moments is a way of fighting back. But I, I just feel we need more. We need a uh, nor another system or, or something put in place where we can police this type of activities uh, and actively get involved.
0: Yeah, uh, Marl, quickly before I uh, get back to our guest, are you watching? Are you able to watch the trial?
5: I watched the opening statements. Uh, it's been I've been watching highlights, if you can call them that, mm-hmm. uh, since then, and um, it's just tough to watch. You know, I've watched the Trayvon Martin uh, case and mm-hmm. um, or George Zimmerman, I should say. And that was tough being a, a millennial um, and, and young and and just still getting into this and, and facing this reality that mm-hmm. this is real. So you no, know, I haven't watched much of much of it. I've been reading up and watching again so-called highlights of this, um, but it's yeah. tough to watch. And I don't, I don't think is, I don't think we're really going to get the outcome that we we seek with this.
0: Unfortunately, yeah. I, 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 I mean, I hope, hope, I hope we do, but uh, I, I have that same. Pit in my stomach, Marl, about uh, you know anticipating, anticipating the worst. Uh, the other thing, Marl, that I want to just quickly note is uh, my heart sank a bit when you uh, described yourself uh, as a millennial who's having these feelings. Um, you know, I'm a Gen Xer, and uh, I, I, I guess I would hope or would have hoped when I was younger uh, that by the time I was in middle age, uh, young African-Americans uh, in this country wouldn't necessarily be having the same kinds of experiences and emotions uh, that, that I did. And so uh, that's a reminder that the things that we've all had to deal with in the past are, are, are still with us here um, uh, in the present. Uh, Nia, I wonder if you have a reaction tomorrow as well
3: yeah i mean it's um it is sad i mean these are conversations that as you said we were having i think you and i Stephen, are around the same age uh and now this younger generation are having and our parents had similar conversations as well and similar experiences with police brutality they didn't have cell phones they didn't have recordings of it but they uh, obviously knew about it and experienced it. You think about Martin Luther King talking about police brutality. Uh, you think about rappers in the early 90s talking about police brutality, and and uh, people didn't necessarily uh, listen, the kind of powers that be. I do think what is hopeful about the place we're in now is what happened in the aftermath of Uh, the death of Mr. Floyd, and that is the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, which became a global movement and a multiracial movement uh, as well. That is certainly something that the millennials have have brought uh, to this uh, discussion, and you do see some change in some of these police departments uh, throughout the country. So that is something to certainly be mindful of, that there is uh, this movement that really wants to address some of these endemic problems.
0: Yeah. Uh, before Before we end, Nia, I want to give you a chance just to talk about where you think we'll be at the end of all of this. As a senior political correspondent for CNN, uh, you, of course, have witnessed all of the things that have happened in the last year and and covered uh, a good good number of them. Does this push us forward or does this leave us right where we always were, no matter what, I guess, the verdict uh, Mm -hmm. ends up being?
3: Yeah, that's, you know, I talked a bit about the Black Lives Matter uh, protest and Mm -hmm. the, the organizers behind that. That does give me some hope that that things will move forward. You see, again, some changes in different police departments uh, wanting to try to respond to incidents in a different way without escalating them uh, in in a deadly way in the way that we saw in this trial. So that is... Uh, some reason for optimism. But I will say you always have to think about history as a as a pendulum swinging, right? There is a progress and then there is backlash. And we saw that with President Obama and then the backlash to that being uh, President Trump. And now we obviously have President Biden. And so you do wonder uh, what the backlash might look like if there is a guilty verdict, if there is a not guilty verdict, Uh, we we will see, but this is just a moment in our history and there will be uh, other responses to it, positive responses to it as well as negative responses to it. And and we as reporters will try to chronicle this as best we can.
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, Nia Malika Henderson, Senior Political Correspondent for CNN. It was really great to have you here with us today. Thanks so much for joining us.
3: Thank you. Take care.
0: Okay, that is going to do it for us this week. I'll be back on Monday. I hope you will, too. We're going to spend the hour talking about immigration. ACLU of Michigan says there are more reports of racial profiling by Border Patrol agents in Michigan. And I'll talk with The Week columnist, Sheikha Dalnia, about what she calls President Biden's lose-lose choice on immigration policy. This is 1019 wdetfm Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday.